Welcome to Video Store. My name is Sam Mulberry. Today we're going to be talking about the 2007 film Lars and the Real Girl. So let's step into Barrett Fisher's Video Store and talk about it. How you doing, Barrett? I'm doing well. Morning, Sam. Good morning. I am really excited. We were just talking uh, before we started recording. I'm really excited to talk about this because this is a movie that when we first talked about this project this is a movie that you named it's also a movie that i've never that i had never seen so um i would i i found myself deeply affected by this movie actually so um we'll we'll get into that i'm sure uh maybe to start with uh can you tell me about your experience first seeing this film and both in terms of i mean did you know much about it before you saw it did you come into it with expectations yeah i that's you know that's a question, Sam, that you, you always do better with than I do. It's it's kind of distressing to me how little I remember of when I, when I first saw films. Maybe um, I've just seen a lot less, so I so it's more memorable. Know, I don't know. Yeah, well, you know, part of the problem is that um, so many you know, I see so many films on video that I have a hard time remembering. So I'm I'm quite certain that I saw it on video. Uh, so I didn't I didn't go to the theater. Um, I would suspect that it probably was a film that was, this is back when I was probably still watching Siskel and Ebert or some version of that. So it was probably recommended to me uh, through, the, through some, some, some means like that. Um, and, but I don't remember knowing much about it going into it. Um, uh, I do remember thinking that this is the kind of a film where, um, kind of like the recent Jojo Rabbit, where there are so, so many ways in which this film could go wrong um that it could it could have been a total disaster and um and i think that to, that's one of the things i admire about the film is i think it walks a really fine line between funny uh and poignant and there are times when it could have just gone so off the rails and it absolutely did not um, i really admire films that are able to kind of uh i wouldn't say exactly mixed genres but maybe mixed tones uh yeah. in, in ways that really are successful yeah, I will say, I mean, as I was, so I'll, just to pull back the curtain, my process for this is I, I watch the movie and then I read stuff about it. And then usually the morning, you know, like at eight this morning, I started to just write questions. Mm -hmm. um, so that, so if these podcasts seem scattered, it's because this is kind of the order that I, that things popped into my head. Um, as I was thinking about this movie, this movie to me seems like it's a lot, I should say viewing this movie seems like it's a lot about expectations. So um, I'm going to reveal something about myself here. Uh, I, this movie taught me something about myself, actually. Like, I'm generally somebody who, ever since I was a little kid, um, my personality is one where, like, I, I kind of, I want to be invisible. I want to be not noticed. I want to just sort of go through life and not be noticed. And mm -hmm. I, I project this onto other people. Mm -hmm. So, uh, and this has actually been hard for me as a parent because my children don't have this. My son especially doesn't have this, but I project it onto him. So I, uh, moments will happen and I feel like this internal, like embarrassment that he's not feeling, but I'm like, oh, I, 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 so I, I project that on, I mean, even as I'm saying this, I'm physically closing my body in like that's, mm -hmm. that's this posture represents how I feel inside. So I will say as I was watching this movie, there were so many moments where mm. because I want to feel invisible, I wanted Lars to want to feel invisible. And I needed to keep reminding myself, that's actually not him. It was so, <laughs> so, so, I mean, he's somebody who's very quiet, like, and, and, and doesn't necessarily want to go to his, uh, into the, the, the house for breakfast with his brother and sister-in-law. But what's interesting is when Bianca shows up, Lars doesn't want to be invisible. He wants this to be something that they're aware of. He wants this to be part of his life. And that was 
that was really interesting for me to to deal with because I don't have that per like because of my particular personality, I kept thinking like Lars, just like just sort of stay in the stay in the <laughs> garage because like like this is going to be weird. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that, that, that's that's actually an interesting insight that Lars. It's it's more about um, it's more about fear and pain uh, than it is about wanting to be invisible, right? It's that uh, he finds physical pain. Uh, in having other people touch him. Um, he finds emotional pain in uh, trying to connect with other people because of the, the trauma of his past that he hasn't dealt with and the fears about the future that he hasn't dealt with. So he's much more about somebody who is withdrawing because it's the only way he can uh, deal with the emotions uh, that he's that he's feeling. Well, and it's what it's, what's interesting is when the when Bianca shows up, it's not it's not Gus um, and Karen who like, are prying into his life and are like, what's up with this? Right. He Lars yeah, brings more, it up. He's like, well, I'm having a guest come over and I, I, I need to tell you about her. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And that and that and that reaction shot is one of the great moments in the in, in the film. The, uh, the the reveal in the in the living room when you see them looking at him and Bianca on the couch, and then and then you just the camera shifts shifts back to what they're looking at. That's just that's a fantastic moment. Yeah. Uh, so you've already used a word. So I, I wrote a, I'm going to jump down to another question I had um, because you used a word to describe this. And when I would read about it, people talk about this. Do you think this movie's funny? Absolutely. Okay. Tell me, uh, tell me about what is funny. Cause I, I, I agree there, there, and there are, there's one moment in particular that to me is the absolute funniest moment and it's very small, but I'm, tell me about this as a funny movie. Well, I, I, I think it's, it's, it, it the, the 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 humor in the movie is really all. It's actually very cinematic in a sense because it's a lot about reactions and reaction shots, um, and and it's about dealing with. It's a lot of humor focuses around incongruity, uh, right? Uh, humor arises when things seem kind of out of out of place or they're unexpected, and I think that's what keeps happening in in this movie. So um, uh, I don't know what your funny moments are, but 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 a couple for me, Sam. In addition to the reaction shot I just mentioned, is um, the moment when he brings Bianca to church, uh, and the entire choir sits down, and poor Margot is left standing there, right. completely shocked. And I also loved I love the scene in the church basement as they're discussing sort of how they're going to deal with this, and the old guy says it's a golden calf. Like, right. <laughs> <seriously. laughs> So, so for me, the funniest moment is when when Lars is talking to Margot. I think this is after he resuscitates the teddy bear, and she asks, like, um, I think I don't remember. She asks if he wants to do like this is before they go bowling, and Lars just very casually reveals that Bianca has been elected to the school board. <laughs> like, so she has a school board meeting, and like, because throughout the throughout the movie, you're seeing like like she's reading to children at school and, and people are taking her to do this or that. But it, it's like, they just say that offhandedly. And I thought, Oh my goodness, that is such a funny, like it's, it's perfect for what's happening in this movie too. You know, I, I think, okay. So Sam, so you were personal a little bit earlier about um, wanting to be invisible. So I'll, I'll be personal in this connection. Um, I, I use humor a lot. Um, hum humor is one of the ways that I, that I deal with, the, with the world. Um, and uh, it can be sometimes infuriating for people who feel that I use humor at times that may seem inappropriate. Um, but to me, there's a lot you can there's there's a lot of there's a lot of ways to filter or deal with reality through humor. So it doesn't surprise me that a film that uses humor uh, is actually able to deal with serious issues because I think it's part of the full range of uh, 
of human emotions. And I think that humor is as important a way of processing even difficult material as, as uh, a serious tone is. Yeah, and, so, and I yeah, and I think in terms of humor, uh, it's not it is the reaction shots, but it's not just the reaction shots. It's also that the reactions are constantly things that I'm not expecting. I went into this movie like waiting for like oh, and this again, this is my personality waiting for Lars to sort of show up with Bianca and have people. Uh, maybe this is growing up in the 80s, which is the last era when like bullying was okay. Like I'm just, I want to be so protective of him and the response and it's a, and it ends up being a funny response is people are so quickly accepting of like, of him, a lot of them, that, that it's not, uh, the community as a whole really circles around him. And I can't, I think it was in Roger Ebert's uh, review talked about how like it's, it's just this silent agreement that everybody sort of goes along with. Um, and that, and to me, that that creates these these funny moments too, where I'm expecting, oh, something bad's going to happen, and then it's like, well, actually, nothing that bad happened. And that's, and, and in some respects, that's the huge. Uh, I will admit this. I think it's the huge suspension of disbelief this movie requires you to make. Um, you know, it's been called kind of Capra-esque in some ways. You know, you think about something like It's a Wonderful Life, which is also a film that has very dark moments as well as, as well as light moments. But yeah, I, you have to kind of accept the idea. And I have to say, in the midst of um, our current circumstances, I was really, really eager to accept this idea that in crises, uh, the, you can often discover the best of human nature. You, of course, can discover the worst. Um, and so... I think there are those who look for a certain level of sociological verisimilitude that might look at the film and say, well, you know, look at look at Gus and the guys he works with at the hardware store, right? The, I, if any group is going to be bullying or, or unaccepting, it's going to be those folks. But then I want to say, yeah, but that's a stereotype. I mean, mm -hmm. what, I mean, who's to say those guys can't be compassionate? Um, so, and, and who's to say that there aren't communities where, cause I, cause there, cause the film, it's not just the, the community of the small town. There's also a community of faith. that's at the heart of the film as well. And I, I would like to believe that we have communities that are capable of that kind of compassion. Yeah. And, and it's, it's, you know, it's interesting because this movie comes out in 2007 and, um, another part of the pandemic, we're all kind of staying at home, quarantined is that I've been revisiting a lot of uh, pop culture, especially TV shows from the past uh, with my kids and watching things that I loved. Uh, and I'm just from like 2001 to 2008, so sort of Bush era TV shows, comedy TV shows. What I'm struck by rewatching them is that they're unbelievably mean. <laughs> like like, like th things that I, at the time, I didn't think of as particularly mean. I'm like, wow, th there's no way you could make that joke now it just would not land. I mean, not not in the pandemic, but I mean, really, probably post two thousand ten. It's just like I feel like my kids have grown up in a world where uh, even early elementary school they were getting lots and lots of like kind of anti-bullying messaging, which I think there's lots of things that are wrong with education. Like I actually think that's worked pretty well. I, I mean, uh, growing up in the eighties, I think about every sitcom that I watched. Uh, the bully was a necessary character, and it wasn't about teaching that bully a lesson. It's just that was just a force of nature in the world, you know, as I'm thinking about things that I watched growing up. And and for my kids, that's a very, that's a more foreign thing. So that may, when I think about this film coming out in 2007, I feel like, wow, other things I'm watching from that time period, there is such a mean edge to the humor of it. So this, I think, 
maybe even plays in a starker contrast if we were to watch it in 2007 than maybe watching it today. Not to say we don't live in a world with a lot of, uh, I mean, that's all, that's, I realize what I'm saying is a strange comment to make in, in 2020, because I don't, I think people who live online don't think of the world as a particularly nice place sometimes. Well, but I think you are right, Sam, in, the, in general, if I think about our society now versus 13 years ago, there's certainly a lot more, um, certainly a lot, how, how should I put this? There's a lot more sensitivity to difference. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, so I, I think, I think actually that that's a, that's a good point. You know, there's really only, there's really only one moment in the film and that's a, a brief remark at the party, right? Where somebody looks at him and says, you know, what a weirdo. Um, but, but other, otherwise, um, you know, the relationship with this cubicle mate, you know, Kurt, I mean, that, that could have ended up looking like a bullying situation, but instead we discover that Kurt has his own vulnerabilities. And he's got his action figures, um, you know, and I, and I love that about the film. Kurt's got his action figures. Margot's got her got her um, teddy bear, um, and Lars has Bianca. So, so part of what the film does, I think, is it is it makes the effort to kind of normalize, in a sense, Lars, and simply say he's on a spectrum. Mm-hmm. He, he, he's at a he's at a far end of a spectrum, but he's on a spectrum that we're all on. So, whatever it is that we value that isn't quote real and yet provides comfort in our life, we are like Lars. And, you know, there's all, all, there's also part of that conversation in the church basement where uh, I think it's Mrs. Gruner says, um, you know, um, you, your cousin puts dresses on cats. Um, so-and-so sends money to the UFO Society. Your wife was a kleptomaniac. Uh, I mean, so who are we to sit around and say what's normal and what and, and what isn't normal? So I think the film does kind of a nice job of, of setting, uh, setting Lars up as, um, you know, somebody who is uh, a, a human being who's at the extreme end of certain kinds of, of, of behavior, but is still on the spectrum. So I think to me, one of the most interesting sub-characters in the film is, is Gus, because Gus describes that in, in, entire spectrum, right? The initial response, he's crazy, we got to put him in an asylum. Uh, and, then, and then to Dagmar, he says, can you fix him? You know, what's wrong with him? Can you fix him? Uh, and then he starts on an internal journey, right? I feel bad. He's living in, you know, he's living in the garage. We came back, we took over the house, he moves out to the garage. I never should have left him with dad. Uh, and then, you know, Gus starts to care for Bianca and then kind of the pivotal conversation of the film when they're in, when they're in the basement and, and he tells Lars he's sorry. Um, and that's kind of like a turn. So, so to me, that's, that's one of the reasons why it works is because I, I believe in a character like Gus. Mm-hmm. Um, and, I, and I believe in Gus's um, trajectory. Uh, so Gus has to heal. Uh, the Gus's healing is actually part of Lars's healing and, and vice versa. Absolutely. And I think it's important that they make Lars as much as, as you know, we can think, wow, this is on that spectrum. This is a, this is a, maybe a fairly strange thing where we're having to, the whole town's having to wrestle with. Lars at the same time is a functional member of that society. He's not, he's not like a deeply marginalized person. He, he, he drives to work. He has a job. He helps people out at church. He's doing all of the, so, so he's also, uh, he's also very normal, you know, and, and, and we don't need to learn that he's very normal. We see him being very normal and then we say, okay, but, and there's this piece to him. And then we, and we need to, and then we, we learn a little bit more about why that is and how he comes to terms with that. Um, as you're thinking about, uh, as we think about Bianca, and this is, I don't know what I meant when I wrote this question down, but um, 
is Bianca a character? And I, I asked this because, like, I guess at one level you could say, well, any object is a character. I mean, she she is not a person. She's not a living being. She's not a ghost. She's a piece of vinyl and whatever. But, like, so so do you think of someone like Bianca as a character? I mean, the yeah, maybe I'll just leave it at that and let's see where you want to go with that. Well, okay. So, first of all, let me say that on set, uh, she was treated as, a, as, as, a, as an actor. Uh, she had her own uh, dressing room, her own trailer. Um, she her own was, PAs, I think. Yeah, yeah she was. Yeah, she. Yeah, she. Yeah, she has her own Wranglers. If you notice in the credits, there's two Bianca Wranglers. Um, she, uh, when she wasn't in scene, she was on the set behind the cameras. Um, they were very careful about uh, nudity. Um, there's only one brief moment when you see her bottom when she's being bathed. So, um, in, in a sense, she was at least treated as an actor, if not a character. I think. I think one way I would answer that question. Um, Sam, is to think about the fact that she's one of the real girls in the film, um, right? So she's a real girl and Margot's the other real girl. Um, but I thought about this in terms of uh, that classic uh, children's book, The Velveteen Rabbit. And, uh, you know, The Velveteen Rabbit is trying to figure out what it means to be real. And he asks various other toys, what is real? And he asks the skin horse, right? And the skin horse says, real isn't how you're made. It's a thing that happens to you. When a child loves you for a long, long time, not just to play with, but really loves you, then you become real. So I think Bianca is, is real, not because she has agency, but because she enables other people to, uh, to demonstrate love, compassion, and, uh, and as the uh, pastor says at the beginning, uh, God is love in action. Um, she enables that to happen. And of course, Lars says she's a missionary, right? And she's right. here to help people, and she does. She helps Lars, but she helps the community as well. Uh, okay, I want to I want to pivot a little bit because one of the in the the thing you sent me that you have a quote from uh, Manola Dargis, who is critical of this movie, and I read that piece, and I have very complicated feelings about that piece. So, um, what do you think about? I mean, what does Manola Dargis have to say? What do you think about her take on this movie? Well, I guess. Um... I guess I, I wanted to acknowledge that 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 take at the at the beginning, which is that um, you know as as far as Manola's Manola Dargis is concerned, this is kind of um, I guess I I don't know I use the word I guess you could use the word uh, uh, schmaltzy. Um, she says it's um, it's calculating, right? She says it's part comedy, part tragedy, and one hundred percent calculating designed to wring fat tears and coax big laughs and leave us drying our damp, smiling faces as we savor the touching vision of American magnanimity. Uh, and then kind of, this, this actually echoes Hamlet's words, but she says it holds a flattering mirror up to us that erases every distortion. Um, okay, I, I, can, I can understand where she's coming from with that, um, that it holds, a, it holds a mirror up to us that makes us feel good about ourselves. We look at the way these people responded to Lars and think, oh, that's great. You know, there's no bullying. There's no, uh, uh, there, there's no making fun of him. That, you know, he doesn't get carted off to, uh, to an asylum right away. Um, but I guess, you know, just as I don't think a mirror that shows things to be altogether bleak is an accurate mirror, you know, nor do I think a mirror that shows things to be, to be good is an inaccurate, is an inaccurate mirror. Um, but you know, she's right. I mean, it is, you, you could call it a flattering picture. Um, but at the same time, I think it's not necessarily an inaccurate picture in terms of the, the possibility that people might be, uh, magnanimous. Um, so. 
So here's my take when I read that. Um, so I grew, I've grown up in Minnesota my whole life, with the exception of about a year of my life I've lived in Minnesota the whole time. I read her piece, and I have never felt so Midwestern. Uh, and not in a bad way. I was just like, because yeah, my yeah. inclination is to want to agree with her. She's a really good writer. I think the stuff she says really is, is sometimes really interesting, really uh, on point. And I read this and just thought like, oh, but actually the setting in like kind of small town Wisconsin really matters to me. Um, and, mm -hmm. and, and, and like, and I'm, again, I'm not somebody who, uh, I actually tend to push away from being like a, a, uh, uh, like a Minnesota booster. I'm not, Minnesotans tend to love Minnesota and love to tell you about people who are from, I'm not that person. And I'm not that person even as a Midwesterner. I, like the two times in my life I felt deeply Midwestern is the year I lived in Alabama and reading Manila Dargis on this. I'm like, oh, actually I'm, I'm, I'm a Midwesterner as it turns out like this. Um, cause I think there's something, like I said, I think there's something about this. Cause if you've ever driven through Wisconsin is actually a great uh, a great example of this, and this is where this is set. My my wife's family has a cabin in northern Wisconsin, so we'll often it's about a four hour drive. We'll drive up there, and whenever we do, I, I always point out these little towns that we go through, and my, the only thing I can think of is, oh, this seems like a place where everyone growing up here can't wait to get out of here, mm. and that's why I am so moved by Gus because, like, I Gus strikes me. I mean, kind of, I see myself in him and I, cause I know if I was in a town like that, I grew up in a bigger, small town than that about 16,000 people. So, you know, bigger than some of these smaller towns, but uh, I felt that way about the town I grew up in. And I, and I just like, I feel like Gus grew up in that town saying, I can't wait to not live in this town. I can't wait to get out of here. And, and, and so he gets, he ends up coming back there. And I mean, there's a part of him that he feels bad that he left, but it's also like, maybe was the right thing to leave. I mean, not, not for, for Lars sake, but, but so I, I, I feel like, like that to me complicates him. And I wonder um, if Manola Dargis had, had lived in the Midwest, if you, if you view this film a little bit differently. Um, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I'm actually originally from the East coast, but um, so I'm not far from that New York sensibility, but I think I've been affected enough by living in Minnesota that <laughs> it's, it's taken a lot of edge off my cynicism. Um, of course, we also can turn that around, and we know we often know that the you know our our Minnesota nice often can actually disguise certainly uh, you know some 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 pretty dark places as well. So but, I think but, you know, yeah, what, what what I really should have offered as an antidote to this film would be something like um, Blue Velvet, uh, right. <laughs> right, which is also set in a small town, but it's all about what actually runs under underneath that surface. Right. And I guess my point though is like I think. It's very, very much on the edges, but this this film is has darkness in it. It's just very much at the edge, and it doesn't tell you about those things. It's it. I mean, it clearly when the death of the mother that deeply affected their dad, and that deeply affected those relationships. And like, so it's not like that darkness isn't there. It's just this movie's not about going back to that. It's about right. how do we, you know? So so I, I I I sort of take issue with the like. Well, we just need to see more of that. It's like, well, actually, it's there, and. Um, and I, I actually, I appreciate, I actually like films where I walk out saying, I kind of wonder what happened there. Not that I want to see what happened there, but I like not knowing everything. Cause I don't, I don't need to know the intricacies of someone's pain. I need to know that they have pain, right. you know? And actually, I think that one of the other things I admire about the film on those lines, um, 
uh, Sam, is I, is I do like the way certain things like that are kind of just understated or elliptical. Um, uh, we're not going to go, you know, we're not going to go deeply into that. That's just kind of a setup for the situation that we're, that we're, we're, that we're dealing with. So I, 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 I guess to me, um, I always admire films that I feel as though they uh, treat me as intelligent and thoughtful. Uh, and I think, and I think this film does that as well. Yeah, I to totally agree. So one of the things you said when you recommended this is that you, you talked about yourself as a pretty big Ryan Gosling fan. Mm. And um, so tell me, uh, why do you love Ryan Gosling in this and why do you love him in general? Well, I love him in general. I think you to start with. I, I love him in general because he is one of those actors who to me has, um, he's both distinctive and yet he, ha yet he has an interesting range. Um, I, 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 and he's also, also an actor that takes on, um, often emotionally complicated roles, uh, like half Nelson is, uh, is another really good, good movie that he's in, but he also going to be in movies where he plays kind of, you know, uh, sort of a, a beefcake kind of, kind of character as well. Um, I think in, in this role, you know, it, it's always, it's always a challenge when you play a, um, when you play a character who has particularly um, deep emotional problems that you not turn them into kind of a caricature or um, or a stereotype. So I guess I, I like his little touches. I, I like the way I like the way he uses his eyes. Um, that kind of uh, nervous blinking that he'll that he'll do from time to time. Um, I, I, I like the way he carries himself. You know, he's somebody who's um, you know you can see he, there's no, there's very little of any physical contact between him and other people. Uh, and when there is, uh, those are very kind of key moments in, in, in the film. Um, I, I like the way that he's able to let Lars blossom a little bit without breaking out of what seems to be Lars's basic character. I mean, Lars is never going to be the life of the party, um, but he is capable of becoming a little more assertive, and you kind of see that. So it's a, it, to me, it's one of those kind of like quiet but powerful performances that could have been, it could have been a lot more over the top. Um, I, I think the fact that he conveys a certain normalcy about Lars, even as he's behaving in very unconventional ways, um, that, that just kind of rang true for me. So you mentioned um, that you use this in a uh, connecting through film uh, discussion or class at your church in 2009. I'm going to mm -hmm. ask you one of those, do you remember questions? So it's okay if it's no. I'm curious, like, what was the response from, from, do you remember what that discussion ended up being like, uh, what the response was? Well, you know, one of the most interesting things I, I remember about that conversation is um, the, uh, and of course, this is 2007, and you, it's interesting that you've been uh, careful to kind of locate it in 2007, because 2007, it, there really was kind of the heyday of the, uh, what would Jesus do movement? Mm -hmm. And so one of the conversations we had in that when I talked about it with folks in my church at the time was on um, the moment in the basement when the pastor says, you know, the question as always is, what would Jesus do? Um, and we had an interesting conversation about whether that was satirical or not. Hmm. And, and it was interesting to me because here I am, you know, I'm this uh, supposedly crusty New Englander um, and I'm embracing that uh, in, in all its earnestness. And one of the members of the of, of the church, uh, who was a lifelong Midwesterner, said, "Oh no, they're making fun of the WWJD." Um, and so that, to me, was really interesting because I, I I feel like um, I think in the film it's an earnest question, and I think the film takes it earnestly. I think if you look at that question cynically, then you have a very different take on the on on, on the film. 
but that's what I remember us mostly talking about was, you know, to what degree is this really a film that has a, a genuine um, kind of Christian, at least ethos uh, to it, if not a Christian message to it. And, and I think it does. I th as I said earlier, I, lo I, I love the way the film kind of, um, it, it, it nests communities or it has these kind of interlocking communities. You know, there's the community at work, there's a community in church, there's a community around Gus's workplace. Um, and, and all those communities kind of overlap, intersect and, and support each other. So I, I take that to be a really straight question because I actually think that's, that's one of the things the film is actually asking. Uh, Absolutely. You know, what, what does it mean to love your neighbor as yourself? What would Jesus do? So as I said, you brought this up, um, I think in the first email back to me when I said, hey, do you want to do this project? This was one of, you know, maybe three or four films that you named. Um, so I'm going to ask you this question and feel free to say, I picked it because I just because I really like this movie. But is does this film teach us anything about living in this sort of COVID-19 era, or is this just something you're excited for people to watch? No, I, no, I, I, de I definitely, it's both, right? I mean, okay. I, I think it's a great film. I've recommended it to people over the years, but no, to me, like I said earlier, to me, it, it is a COVID-19 film um, because I think that we all need to figure out ways to be, to be gracious to each other. Uh, and I think this film to me, the film is inspirational in that respect. Um, and, and I think it reminds us of the, the necessity for um, these human connections. I think what's maybe painful about the film to watch it right now is because it is about literal physical communication. Uh, um, yes, interaction. Um, one of my favorite scenes in the film is um, when uh, Karen comes out to confront Lars um, as he's chopping wood because he's angry about the fact that Bianca's not spending enough time with him. And she goes into that, you know, kind of um, ang angry, loving outrage. And one of the things that she focuses on is that Bianca is not physically easy to handle. She says, she's a big, big girl, um, uh, Lars. Um, so there's that moment. There's, of course, the moment in, da in Dagmar's um, office where she, you know, she tries touching Lars to help him, help kind of desensitize him. Um, there's that really, really key moment when he takes off his mitten or his glove in order to shake uh, Margot's hand. So in that sense, it's, it's a little hard because, but at the same time, to me, it captures why it is we are finding our isolation, our sheltering at home, our social distancing so difficult because um, we do miss the, the necessity of those those literal human human touches. Um, but at the same time, as I said, the film kind of um, inspires me to say that in the midst of those kinds of testings, we can still be uh, be kind to one another. Well, Barrett, I want to thank you for uh, for recommending this one. I, this is this is one that I uh, I think I said on the first episode, I love a movie where I just can't stop thinking about it. So I watched this last Saturday and it's just, Every day I've thought about it. I've thought different pieces. I've seen different connections to, to it in life. So like I, I am thrilled that this was, and I hope people listening uh, actually sat down and watched it. It's on Amazon Prime. So it's uh, it's it's pretty easy to access. Um, and, and, before, sorry, go ahead. I got to pick out one more moment, Sam, before we close. And it's, it's in a moment that's easy to miss. Um, the, uh, I, I'm not going to go into this right now, but I divide the film up into five acts. Uh, and at the beginning, what I regard as Act Three, Lars is reading from Don Quixote to Bianca, and the line he reads is, "But what distressed him greatly was not having another hermit there to confess him and to receive consolation from." 
Um, and that was another moment in the film where I thought, yes, that is, that is about our need for a human community and how God speaks to other people. Absolutely. So what do we have for next week? Well, you know, as I thought about what we have for next week, and I thought about our conversation today, there's actually a lot more overlap than I, than I, than I realized, even though this is going to sound like there's no connection whatsoever. Um, I'm going to take you back to a, uh, one of my favorite classic American directors that have been forgotten by a lot of people. And I mentioned him our first week, uh, and that is Preston Sturgis. Um, this is, uh, this is one of Sturgis's best films. It's actually not my favorite Sturgis film, but it's a really good film. And there's a secret reason why I want you to watch it, Sam, uh, which you will soon discover. Uh, it's called Sullivan's Travels from 1941. Um, it's Joel McRae and Veronica Lake. And I realized as we were talking that one of the reasons why this actually connects with Lars and the Real Girl is it is, again, it is one of those films that actually deals with both comedy and tragedy within the same, uh, within, within the same uh, reel. Um, it does it quite differently, though. Um, it, it does it more in terms of kind of splitting the two sections. There's a comedic section and a tragic section. Um, anyway, I just, I just, I just love this this film, and um, I hope other people do too. So, Sullivan's Travels. Yeah, this is this is another film that I have heard heard of, heard people mention. I've never seen, so I don't know that I've ever seen a Preston Sturgis movie. So I'm I'm very excited to uh, uh, to give this movie a, give this movie a watch, to read about it, and to talk about it next week in the video store. So thank you very much, Barrett, uh, for a great conversation. Uh, we will catch you next week uh, in the video store. If you want to get in contact with us, you can email us at channel thirty nine hundred at gmail.com. Uh, and for Barrett Fisher, I'm Sam Mulberry. We'll catch you next week in the video store.